This morning, I'm excited. Uh, summer's kind of now behind us. I know that's depressing for some of us, but it's kind of nice. Uh, I've been away for a little bit uh, here in August, and then I had a wedding to do uh, a weekend ago up in upstate New York, and kind of we're back and settled into the groove now. And this morning also starts kind of we're back into the groove with church and kind of launching a new series this morning. Uh, that series we've titled Weak and Needy. Uh, as we kind of kick into this, this title itself, I just want to kind of jump in with a question to kind of just get this whole series moving. Do you or do I, I could ask, celebrate weakness? Really think about it. Truly down to the core of your being, do you celebrate being weak? Do I celebrate weakness? As I think about that question and I look at our culture around us and I begin to say, you know what? No, I really don't. Matter of fact, I hate weakness. I can't stand it. I can't stand it in me and I don't like to see it in you. I don't like to see it in an organization like a church. I don't like to see it in my home. I don't like to see it in my marriage, my kids, and I hate it in me. I could tell tons of stories that kind of help us relate to this, maybe pull it out in your own heart and mind, but probably one that pops out uh, quick for me is on our honeymoon. We get married 55 degrees on, on that Saturday. Two days later, we've had 10 inches of snow. We're in the Poconos. And it's all-inclusive. Everything's included. And they have all this entertainment option. So Tanya says to me, with the snow, they, they open the slopes up on the ski hill. And she says, well, why don't we go skiing? I'm thinking, we could do that. I've never done it before in my life. But I'm athletic, I think. Maybe not. I'll give it a shot. I can pick this up. So we get out to the hill. As we're going there, I'm beginning to hear her stories of her skiing throughout the years. I'm thinking, wow, she knows what she's doing. We get there, we get sized up, and we, they send us over to like this little five-foot hill. I mean, just this, to, to, with an instructor. Let's just figure out how to do this thing. Something I can do this. So I put these skis on, and the first thing he has us do is kind of walk sideways up this hill. Well, it was the... I'm sitting there going, you know what? If God wanted these things in my feet, he would have birthed me with them. This is not going to work. I'm getting frustrated. I finally get up on top of the hill. And he says, let's go down the hill. And he tries to teach you how to snowplow, I guess is the official word for stopping uh, the way you do it. I could not do it. I was on my rear end. I was was just like, I had enough of this. I'm getting frustrated. My wife is, for the very first time, learning what they didn't teach us in pre-marriage counseling. How do you work with a husband who's really embarrassed of his weakness getting angry, getting frustrated, and then I just blurted out, you know what, let's just go to the top of the dang hill and I'll figure this thing out. She's like, are you sure you want to do that? I'm like, yes, I can do this. So we go over to get on the ski lift. She slides over. I go to slide over. I'm trying to figure this out. The ski lift comes around, hits me square in the back. I fall flat on my face. It scoops her up. She goes up about, I don't know, six feet, looks back and sees me laying on my face with my skis up in the air. She jumps off the ski lift to try and, and they shut the whole thing down. And there I am on my face trying to get stood up. It was terrible. After two trips down the hill, and it's hard to call them trips because I was on the ground more than I was, I think, on my feet, I get to the bottom of the hill, and I look over, and I see this beautiful tube hill. And I say, I can tube. I am the champion tuber. You know what? Forget this skiing. We're taking them back. Come on, honey. We are tubing the rest of this day. So that's what we did. I hate weakness. Now, I could go on with stories about that. But isn't it true we hate, we hate weakness? We hate looking weak. We hate being perceived as weak. And it could come in a number of ways. I mean, it, it could come in all kinds of ways. I mean, it could be just simply as simple as 
me having to stop and ask for directions. Guys in the room, and women, wives, you're probably elbowing your husband. See, honey? Losing to my kids. I hate losing to my kids. I hate it. Losing to my wife. She beats me in go-kart. She beats at skiing. It's, it's not fun. Not knowing. Have you ever been in that position where you're in a group of people and it's clear they know something? Matter of fact, this, um, we were at a conference, Chris and I and his wife and my wife and um, Nate Tromler here from the church. And one of the speakers referred to YOLO from the stage. Now, I've never heard the term YOLO. And I'm, I'm kind of, we get around in a group and they're talking about, you know, YOLO. And apparently this is this young teen term. And, I, and I'm like, they say, do you know what that means? And I'm like, yeah, I, I think I do. <laughs> What does it mean? Could you use it for me, Chris? I mean, tell me, what does it mean? I mean, I didn't know. You feel weak. You feel dumb. You don't want to let on that I really don't know what YOLO is. And I'm, I'm trying to, I'm an old guy now. I'm, I'm not up with all these hip, cool statements. Those times you just feel stupid. Maybe you come home from school with the F on your paper. Um, the time in sports. The kicker for Penn State yesterday. Weakness at its finest. And doesn't the camera... Doesn't the camera just love to zoom in on him after missing four field goals and watch his face and follow him all around? We, I mean, we feed on weakness. We, we, it's just, it's crazy. But strength, I look at strength and we're, we're a culture and I'm a, I'm a person who looks to strength and says, man, it's my savior. You know, I'm not musical, but I would love to be. Um, others say, boy, um, I want to be wise, intelligent, a genius, a strong social IQ. I want to have lots of friends on Facebook. I'm happy, got a great family, a strong marriage. Man, I want to look like the guy on the front of the GQ magazine. That's my boy. Or the model, or the drive a nice car, be creative. And we go on down this list, and I kind of look at our culture. And as a culture, we celebrate and honor and love the self-starting, hardworking strength in a person. And we despise weakness in others and ourselves. Now, what I find happens as I've been meditating this all summer is this thought comes crashing into our spiritual world and our spiritual life. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows up and he says, Adam, do you celebrate weakness? Come back to the original question. Because Adam, he says to me, he says to us, he says, if you don't celebrate weakness, I might not be for you. Adam, he says, if you're not weak, I'm not really good news to you. And it's the foundation of this thing called Christianity is actually weakness. And Jesus is not going to be cool. He's not going to be awesome. He's not going to draw me in if, if I'm not weak. Turn with me, if you have a Bible with you, to Luke. One of the writers of what we call the New Testament is an eyewitness and lived at the time of Jesus and took in what Jesus said and saw. If you're not familiar with your Bible, you're going to find Luke about three quarters of the way through. You're going to see um, an author named Matthew and then Mark and then Luke. Luke chapter four. Jesus delivers this message. He says, hey, you got to be weak. If you're not weak, I'm not for you. Luke chapter four. Now, what's happening in Luke chapter 4 as you're turning there, or finding it on your phone, as you're finding in Luke chapter 4, what's happening in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is 30 years old, roughly. 
He has been living in what we would call obscurity in a poor village called Nazareth. He'd lived in a poor family, a carpenter's. It wasn't any great, notorious, wonderful family. It was just an average, everyday, let's get through middle class to lower income family. He's now to the place where he's 30 years old. He's saying, I'm going to step out and do this thing that God has sent me to this earth to do. To do that, it starts out with Luke chapter 4. He heads out into the wilderness on a kind of a spiritual retreat of sorts. He goes out to just fast and to pray and to connect with God and to really, I think, anchor himself in and also be tested. Satan shows up there and hangs out with him for those 40 days. 40 days without food and water and Satan comes on in and Satan says, hey. And he tries to derail him and tries to hit him with every shot he has. Jesus stands the test. He has a spiritual retreat. He comes on back into town, and this is where we pick up. He preaches. One of the first recorded messages we have is right here in Luke chapter 4. Look at verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Verse 15. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So here he comes back in, and everyone's going, man, this guy is the stuff. They, they want to hear him. They draw in to hear him. They, they, they crowd around him. And verse 16, he went to Nazareth. This is the first recorded kind of homecoming. I'm going to go home where I grew up. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. So he walks into the synagogue. He stands up. The scribe comes on over and hands them a scroll. It's the book, or as we would know it as in our Bible, you typically refer to it as a book of Isaiah. It's a scroll back then, and it's not broken up in verses like we would have in ours. And he unrolls this scroll of Isaiah, and here's what he looks for, and here are the verses that he finds. In our Bibles, this would be Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. It says this. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the Who's he preaching to? To the poor. Now keep in mind, this is, Jesus, this is Jesus basically standing up and declaring, this is my mission. This is what I've come for. So I'm coming to preach good news to the who? Turn to your neighbor and say, you're poor. To the poor. He says, I'm coming to preach to the poor. Now most of us, Most of us in this room, some of us might consider ourselves poor, but most of us would not say and list, if we had a list, our socioeconomic class, we would not list poor. So we say, is Jesus coming for me? Look what he continues to read. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the who? Prisoner. Now, most of us, there are some of you in this room who have a record and have spent time in jail. Some of you now have friends and family that are in jail, but most of us in this room, you look to your neighbor to the right and the left, have not spent time in jail. So you say, is Jesus for me? And it continues in verse 18 there, and recovery of sight for the who? Blind. To release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, he reads this. Then verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
Now, this is, I love this detail. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So I picture him standing up and reading this with a lot of emphasis and authority and people's ears were opened and they're moved with what a communicator and everyone watches him. Their eyes are trained on him. And it says this, he begins to speak today. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22. All spoke well of him, were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? The thing that's interesting to me is he stands and he proclaims this. I have come for the oppressed, the poor, the blind. I've come to preach and to reach those people. The thing that's very interesting, though, is he doesn't read the entire verse of Isaiah 61. He cuts it off. He intentionally, Luke records this, he intentionally stops and he rolls it up and gives it back. He did not finish the thought. It's interesting, I'm going to put it up on the screen in a minute. We're going to go back and look at what thought he left out. It's very interesting to me. Here's what's most interesting. I have struggled with much of my spiritual journey growing up in in a religious culture like Lancaster, growing up going to a Christian school, a Christian home. One of the things I've always struggled with is seeing God as a God of love and understanding a God who is for me, who is moving in my direction. My view of God, and I find this as I interact with other people that they struggle with this same thing, is they, our view of God tends to be he's angry, he's mean. He's punitive. He's the big judge in the sky ready to take it out on me. And I always struggle to see God is a loving, gracious God who's bestowing favor. Now you go back to Isaiah 61 and look at what it says. Now then, this is what Jesus would have read. This is looking back. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. I mean, it's like we're reading it right here. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captive and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then look at this. After favor, Luke records, he rolled the scroll up and gave it back. But look at what he left out. And the day of what? Vengeance. Jesus doesn't read it. You know why Jesus doesn't read it? Because it's not what he was coming to do. He wasn't coming to say, God's here to beat you all and punish you. He was coming to say, God has favor on you. God is moving in your direction. And I am the fulfillment of that. I am the person who is moving God's heart in your direction. And what I've found over the years is when I feel that God is angry and this vengeful, angry guy up in the sky, ready to beat me down. I need to run around in a cower of and be afraid of what I've found is the problem. Isn't God. The problem is me. Here's what I mean by this. I won't sense that God is for me. If I'm arrogant, self-reliant, self-righteous, pious, and you can let the words go on down the list. Scriptures teach over and over that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. So coming back to weakness, we don't celebrate weakness. We celebrate strength and being a great self-starter and disciplined, hard worker. I'm in control of my life. Isn't that what most of us think? 
Most of us are in control of our life. I think it's interesting to me. The illustration to prove that that's not true is all it would take is a phone call to you this afternoon to completely upend your entire life. A phone call that says, hey, this is the highway patrolman calling to let you know that your son or your daughter died on 283 this afternoon. A phone call from the oncologist that says, hey, I want to let you know it's not good news. We got in a test. I need you to come in tomorrow morning. First thing we need to talk about kind of putting things in order for the end of your life. See, we're not that much in control. We live in life as though we're in control. And I have this kind of perceived idea that I'm in control of my wonderful little life. But when it all comes down in the end, who's in control of my life? So I find a lot of times I don't view myself as poor, as oppressed, as blind. But that's who Jesus came for. So I don't view myself that way. Instead, I view myself as strong, self-reliant. And I think the reason Jesus didn't read that vengeance line is because he's saying, if you're brokenhearted, you're not going to sense the vengeance of God. You're going to find a God whose arms are huge and wide and he wants to hold you close. He's whispering your name to bring you in to his chest. To be a rock to stand on. Not a God who's here to get you. So I've struggled with this a lot over the years. I think it's interesting. Jesus here has also struggled with this. Something happens here very interesting. They're, they're moved with this Jesus, but they reply, if you already read it, at the end of verse 22, isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Now, Jesus, is gonna, Jesus hears this, so he's going to drive this stake right at the heart. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, he continued. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I want to stop there. No prophet is accepted in his hometown. Why not? Do you know why? My personal opinion. When I came back from Bible school, I was a jerk in high school. On our drive home from South Carolina with Chris and Aaron and my wife and Nate, we're kind of talking about this. And, and I, I'm ashamed of my past life in high school. When I came back from that school in upstate New York, and I have things back in order, and I am pursuing Jesus with everything I have, I come back to the church that I grew up in to serve. I had a miserable time serving in that church. The reason is because we celebrate strength and hate weakness. And the prophet in his hometown, why he struggles is because these people knew Jesus growing up. See, we look at people from a distance. The people to, most of the people to around you, if it's not someone who lives in your house, but if you look around you, most of those people are looking at you from a distance. They don't see the real you. But the people who live with you day in and day out see the real you. 
See, I learned this lesson when I got to Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte, North Carolina, for me, when I moved there, I was recruited by some nationally known figures and published authors who from a distance, people paid lots of money to come see them speak on a stage like this. They bought their books and they loved what they had to say. Well, guess what I found out when I got there and I lived with them? They're weak and needy people. But we celebrate strength. He has the answer. That's why he's up there talking. And I realized, you know what? These guys are cool guys, but they put their pants on one leg at a time, just like I do. And my goodness, look at what he struggles with. I don't struggle with that. So the prophet in his own town, I think what these people are thinking is, oh, come on now, Jesus. Your half-brother James doesn't even like you. Bible tells us that. He can't stand you. Now, he comes around, and we know that. At the end of the story, James comes around. They're probably saying, no, wait a minute. Whoa, I, I know that you claim you're this, fulfilling this passage, but aren't you the illegitimate child that came from a marriage that you were born outside of wedlock, and your mom probably should have been killed before you were even born? So they see, and under, aren't you Joseph's son? And they, they, they're in that inner circle, and they see because... We, again, celebrate strength, hate weakness, and they see the weakness of this family system. Not of Jesus. He wasn't sinful, and I don't want to paint that picture, but they see the weakness of his family sister. So what Jesus is beginning to say to them, and it's going to come out real clear in just a minute, but he's saying, listen, guys, the poor, the broken, the oppressed, that's all of us. We are all weak and needy, unable to save ourselves. That's what he's really looking at him in the eye and saying it. Because look at what he says. This is interesting. He, he goes to some historical stories. And here's what he says. Look at verse 25. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Now, why does he pick out widow? What is, you go back to the list in verses 18 to 19. Would a widow be poor? Yes. Would a widow in that day be oppressed? Most likely. So he's coming, he's pulling out. Now I'm going to pull an example out of the, of the poor and the oppressed. I'm going to use a physical example of a widow. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there was a severe famine throughout the land. So times were tough. The economy took a radical downturn. Things were hard. There were widows during that downturn of the economy who suffered deeply. There were a lot of people who suffered. And then he says this, look at what he says. Yet Elijah was not sent to who? Any of them. But to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. In other words, I sent my man Elijah to someone outside of the Jews. See what he's doing? He's doing a couple things here. One is he's saying, guys, I'm not just talking about physical oppression, physical poverty, because there were physically poor hurting people in, in the nation of Israel that I did not help, that I was not for. So why would you for him? Because Jesus is talking about the broken in spirit, the poor in spirit. 
See, I find there's a couple ways to be arrogant. One way to be arrogant and proud and self-reliant is to stand here in this stage and say, look at me and look at how great I am. I love to tell the story of super value, how I started as a lowly order selector and climbed into the ranks of management. I hate telling the story of Charlotte where I started out as a church planner and left with my tail between my legs, a loser. We love this strength. So I can stand and tell you how great, Adam, man, I'm so good. Look at me. That's one way to be arrogant. Another way to be arrogant though, is to suffer, be a widow, be oppressed, be poor, be abused and neglected, and then stand and say, look at me. Look at all that I've endured. Look how great I am for what I've put up with. I live with this loser of a husband. I live with this horrible boss and I'm enduring under his pressure. Look at me for all that I've endured. It's just as arrogant and just as proud and just as self-reliant. It's not coming to a place of saying I am broken and I am hurting and I'm in desperate need of help. I can't do this on my own. See, we want to do it on our own. And when I'm poor and I'm suffering and I'm struggling, there's still this call inside of me that says stand up and fight. Be the self-starting, hardworking, disciplined person that's going to pull yourself out of this. So Jesus is pointing a finger and saying, just because you're poor and hurting physically doesn't mean I'm for you. And he goes, there's another story. He gives another one. And there were many in Israel with leprosy. There were a lot of sick people in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet none of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, again, a non-Jewish person, was cleansed. Now, verse 28 and and following, they get ticked off. They got the message. They understood that what he was saying to them is, I'm calling you poor and needy, and you don't see it. So here's what he says. Verse 28, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill to which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. Now, verse 30 is a cool statement. I don't know, I don't know what he did here. It's, this is some kind of miracle that he performs, that basically he just walks right through the crowd and went on his way. See, the message Jesus delivers to these people is, guys, I have come for the poor, and you're poor. I have come for the oppressed, you're oppressed. I've come for the blind, you're blind. I've come for you. I'm coming to tell you that God is for you and he's bestowing his favor on you through me. Embrace me. Acknowledge your neediness. Acknowledge your brokenness and have me and you're going to have the favor of God. She says, you're poor, let me make you rich. You're a prisoner, let me free you. You're blind, let me give you sight. You're oppressed, let me bestow my favor. But we hate it, don't we? We hate it. I'm not weak. Psalm 34, if you don't have this one memorized, if you're maybe new to Christianity, or maybe this is a new verse to you, or even if you've been around the block a while with Christianity, I'd still encourage you to get this one locked in your heart. This has been the theme of scripture from Genesis right on to the end of our Bibles where we know it as Revelation. Psalm 34, again, if you don't have it memorized, I encourage you to write it in a note card, put it on your phone, stick it on your screensaver in your computer, in your office, by your kitchen sink, on your refrigerator, a dashboard of your car, but this is a huge one to lock away in your heart. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Isn't that cool? He's close to the brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed. 
It's an interesting word, crushed. Crushed in spirit. Psalm 34, 18. He's close to the brokenhearted, close to those who are crushed in spirit. What we're going to do in this series is we're going to look all throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John at stories of how Jesus interacts with the weak and needy and how it moves his heart. His purpose, Luke 19.10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was what? Look to your neighbor and tell him you're lost. Just tell him. Go ahead. You know, we hate that. I hate being lost. I hate it. I hate asking for directions. A a few weeks ago, we started our vacation back in August. We went with my parents to their church and went out to eat afterwards. And my my oldest son, Luke, had ripped his Crocs. Now, Crocs, I'll just pause right here. Crocs, honestly, one of the coolest inventions of the last of our modern time. I mean, these, these things are just the coolest things ever, especially as a parent. I love them. So we figure, you know, he's got, you need a pair of Crocs if you're a kid. We're leaving a vacation. We got to find these Crocs. So I get on my phone. We're over having dinner near the outlet. So I think maybe there's a place to buy Crocs. So I get on the phone, type it in, and it pops up that there's a Croc outlet in Tanger. Now, I've been to Tanger a few times, and I don't ever remember seeing a Croc outlet. So I'm thinking, really? Let's go check it out. So we go, and we drive in, and we drive. The place was completely packed on a Sunday afternoon. wasn't hardly a parking space around. So we just drove around real slow and looked at every single sign on the building. Not one of them said Crocs. Not one of them. So finally, we see famous footwear. Well, that's a shoe store. Let's maybe, uh, so I pull up along the curb because I'm going to to my wife, you hang here in the car. I'm going to run in really fast with Luke. If they have Crocs, we'll grab a pair and come back out. And she stops me before she goes out. Well, sweetie, just ask them where the Croc store is. No. <laughs> no. We just drove around. You can see with your own eyes, there is no Croc store. We are not lost. This phone is wrong. This, we're good. We, we got it together. So I'm heading into the store and I begin to think, you know what? She's going to ask me when I get out, did you ask for directions? And I'm going to have to tell her no. So I think, what can I do about this? I don't want to lie, but I don't want to ask for directions. So, so the, the guy comes up as we find a two pair of Crocs. They're, they're not the coolest Crocs in the world, but they'll do. And then the guy comes, can I help you? I'd say, man, this crazy phone. Would you believe it? This thing says there's a Croc store over here. He goes, no, there's no Croc store over here. I said, yeah, I know. I don't want this thing telling me. So I come back outside and she says, did you she, I show him the Crocs we bought Luke. Well, did you ask him where the Croc store is? Yeah, I ask him. I'm good. I got directions. He says, there is none. Move on. We hate being lost. We hate asking for directions. But Jesus says, I've come for you who are lost. So if I'm not lost, he's not for me. He's not moving in my direction. We're going to look at other stories like this throughout this series. Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 to 13. Maybe write it down, look at it this week. A centurion, a leader, a non-Jewish person who's leading the the Roman military, a strong individual comes to Jesus because his servant is sick and his heart of compassion for his servant is moved. He says, I'm going to go to this guy, Jesus, who can help me. So he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, my servant is sick. Will you please help? Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to interrupt everything and I'm going to go to your home and we'll heal him. He stops Jesus dead in his tracks and says, no, please, please, please. You can't do that. Then he says this, I am unworthy. You would even enter my home unworthy. What is that? Weak and needy. Jesus looks back at him and says something deeply profound. He says, you know what? 
I haven't seen this much faith in all of the nation of Israel. Your servant is healed. The faith was connected to being weak and needy. It moved the heart of God to heal someone. I think of other stories. I think of other stories like Luke chapter 18. We're going to talk about this one in the coming weeks. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. Maybe look at it this week. Uh, It's Pharisee. A religious guy shows up and a tax collector shows up for church. The religious guy shows up and he sits down in church to worship God. And he begins, looks around, he looks at everyone else and he says, my goodness, look at him. God, thank you that I'm not that guy. Oh, look at her over there. Wow, God. You know what, God? I'm coming to you to present to you a holy life. I am such a good guy. God's heart is, he wants to vomit. Tax collector shows up. And it records him sitting in his seat. It says he was beating his chest, begging God for mercy. Because he knew how weak and needy and broken and unworthy he was. And the text records that person moved the heart of God. My favorite story, my favorite story in the entire Bible comes in the book of Luke, chapter 7. We're going to look at this one in the coming weeks. A sinful, sinful woman shows up. She is probably the town prostitute. She is sexually promiscuous. There's a gathering of religious leaders. All these religious people are there. And one of the things I've learned about religious people, self-righteous people, who put so much emphasis in their morals and holiness, and that's what's going to please and satisfy God is my hard work and my discipline, and they forget about they really need Jesus. They don't love people very well. They don't have dirt under their fingernails. They aren't willing to get dirt under their fingernails because they aren't willing to touch what is unclean, and they think they're unclean. They aren't willing to walk into the brokenness because they don't see themselves as broken. And there's a story of all these religious people who are gathered, and then this one woman shows up. She's known in the town as the one that's got the problems. She's weeping at Jesus' feet. They start whispering. They look, they begin to, whoa, what is up here, dude? I mean, Jesus, if you were really the son of God, you'd know this woman should not be touching you because she is not clean. Jesus tells them the famous story. There's two moneylenders. One owes a million dollars, one owes a thousand bucks. The banker relieves both debts. He looks back at the religious guys and says, who loves the banker more? They answer, right? The guy that owes a million. He looks back at him and says, you know what, guys? He who has been forgiven much, loves much. He who has been weak and needy, broken, oppressed, poor, and found life in that place. Runs out of this place cheering and screaming and celebrating. And all they know to do is to love in return. They aren't busy spending their time. Well, look at them and look at them. And oh my goodness, can you believe? They're, They're just saying, I need to share this incredible thing that I've found. So we're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, but this morning the heart is just, do we celebrate weakness? Do we celebrate weakness? Another way to ask this question is, is the message of Jesus, be honest about this question, is the message of Jesus good news to you? See, gospel is the word that we use a lot. And if you've grown up around the church, you hear the gospel of Jesus. All it means in the original language is good news. The good news of Jesus. 
Is Jesus really good news to you? And a lot of the reason at times we have to be honest and say, well, he's really not because I'm really not that bad. Yeah, he forgave me, but didn't forgive me what he forgave that person over there. We think we're pretty good people. Strong, self-reliant. The conference that I was at this past week, we heard from pastors from Seattle and Las Vegas and Atlanta, Georgia, and all points in between. And one of the things that I consistently hear them talk about is this need and this desire as a pastor to make sure that you are drawing people to Jesus. Period. And the reason they talk about this is because the church in America is some sitting pontificate and it doesn't look real pretty. It's struggling. The church in America, as I listen to these other guys talk and describe it, is, is one where people, it would not be described of people being in awe of Jesus, being radically moved to the core with love for him. I had to think on a drive home as I'm, and then reflect in my quiet time, how about Bethany? about this church? Are we radically in love with Jesus? Do we come into this place and just walk out of here going, God, thank you for Jesus Christ. I'm in awe of him. I am moved by him. He has given me life. He's taken me from death to life. I ask it of myself, Adam, is Jesus really good news to you? And I'll be honest, I have to answer a lot that He's not because I celebrate strength. There's one story of a pastor who stood on stage at his church out in Las Vegas at this conference. And he confessed to his church that just a few weeks earlier, he put a hole in his drywall with his fist. I began thinking about this, and I thought about that a lot. I said, you know what? That took guts. But what it demonstrated to his church is we all are weak and needy and on a journey. Every single one of us, including the pastor. Now, there's a line, yes, I can't cross, and I would remove myself from ministry if I did. But guess what? I get angry. Guess what? Yesterday, I was emotionally checked out from my family because of the long week I had, and I just didn't want to be around anyone. Guess what? I at times struggle with lust on my heart and greed and not wanting to give my 10%. But when I think about what it takes to stand and say that, I get, whoa. And I find that to be common amongst many of us. Because we celebrate strength. We want others to see me as good and strong and wow. But to stand and say, you know what? I need to go see a counselor. Or to stand and say, hey, I'm struggling, not me, but I'm struggling with alcohol. Or to stand and say, hey, my marriage isn't great. Or to stand and say, hey, you know what? You see me all cleaned up at church. I'm really not cleaned up on the inside. We don't like to do it. So the heart of this series is really just stop and say, okay, let's celebrate our weakness. Not stay there. Jesus wasn't content with people staying there. But he embraced them there. So I just want to close this in prayer. 
Because the thing I know that we all want, I know this. We want that peace with God. We want a God who, when I'm scared to death, I can go to and crawl up in his arms. I want a God who is bestowing favor on me. But to get that God that he truly is, I've got to come to a place that's emptied of myself and say, you know what, God, I'm weak and needy. And he says, welcome home. Come on in and sit in my lap and let me hug you through this dark time. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, as he stands in this story and opens up this scroll and just begins to read and say, I have come for the poor, the broken, the oppressed, the blind. God, boy, that rubs us because, whoa, I'm strong. I'm self-reliant. I'm a good guy. But God, then it's no wonder why at times we struggle to see you as a God of radical love, a God of, of acceptance, a God of fa- who's bestowing favor on us. Which you are to the brokenhearted. You're close to the brokenhearted. But God, those of us that sit here in this room right now, God, would you convict and would you move and would your spirit work? And if there are people here that are self-reliant, it would be the Bible calls proud, self-righteous. God, we're going we're gonna, to, God is, you're going to be far from us. You oppose us. You stand against us in those moments. You're anything but close and pulling us in to say, it's okay. As you whisper to us. So God, help us to be a people who depend on you. Help us to be a people that every day when we get out of bed, we say, you know what, God, here I am again, weak and needy, coming to you to say, fill me up. Coming to you to say, give me life, bind up my wounds through Jesus and him alone so that I can walk out into this world and help bind up the wounds of others who are trying so hard to look strong in the face of difficult times. So God, be with us. As we listen to this song now, would you just speak to us? Amazing Grace. It's a song that we've heard so many times, but it's a song that rings with such truth. Amazing Grace. How can it be? How can it be that you saved a person as dark as me? So just move in amongst us right now as we listen and reflect and, and just ask the question, do we really, are we honest about our weakness? Do we really celebrate it so that we can run to you and find life? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.